All right. One of the words you hear a lot at Christmas time is the word peace, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to all. Uh, the text that Ryan just read calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. It's a word you hear all over the place. But it is, if there's one word that cannot be adequately translated from Scripture, it is that word peace. Or in Hebrew, shalom, which is lamely and weakly translated peace, but it means so much more. In fact, I think that word peace is just a problematic word in general for, for, for a lot of reasons. For one thing, for me, it's not a very attractive word. Peace sounds so peaceful, which sounds kind of boring. Right? Like the kind of peace makes me think of lying in the sun in Hawaii by the ocean, which does sound awesome. Let's just think about that for a minute, shall we? Like, that sounds awesome, right? But after, here's the thing, I can only do that for so long, and then I need to do something energetic, like go get a Mai Tai or something like that. I think the other problem with the word, word peace is, is we think of it as the absence of conflict or stress, uh, having everything in our lives just perfectly so. A while back, I was at a coffee shop, and there was a woman in line who said to the barista, is that latte going to be 160 degrees because I need it to be 158? What? Are you kidding? Like two degrees difference. And then she kind of went on and she went, she said, and I'd like, I'd like it half soy and half regular and a shot of vanilla, but not a full shot, just kind of a half of a shot. And then she had like four more requests and just went on and on. My wife said, we need another recession. Like, man, that will cure that stuff right up, right? Like, but here's what really annoyed me about that woman. How much like her I am. Not about lattes, but I can be that way about a whole ton of stuff like Christmas like you guys know that I am a Christmas freak I love Christmas I want I want the perfect Christmas experience so so every year I put up a ton of lights my my wife says I let off a Christmas bomb right I, I, I bake cookies I take our daughters to the nutcracker I build fires in the fireplace I make hot chocolate are you hearing a word repeated over and over like, I do all of this, right? My wife always says to our kids, kids, if something happens to daddy, no more Christmas. <laughs> and I do all that so that we can have, like, this perfect Christmas experience. But sometimes it stresses me out. Like, two weeks ago, I was trying to get the lights up. I was trying to write a sermon. And one of my kids asked me something, and I felt irritated. You know, I was like, leave me alone. I'm getting Christmas ready so we can have fun. Ho, 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 and all that stuff. Biblically speaking, peace is not having everything just 158 degrees perfect. Because that's a never-ending cycle, isn't it? I mean, we get what we want, but then we just want something else, and that's not peace. And I think peace is a word that resonates with a lot of people. I mean, we all kind of want inner peace in our own lives, but man, beyond that, our world. Oh, our, I mean, wow, like what a month, right? Like shootings and terrorism and like where is peace and what does Jesus want to do about all of that three weeks ago I was in the West Bank with another pastor from Seattle and we were kind of there to see what peace might look like in such a volatile situation and we were in the homes of Muslim Palestinians and Christian Palestinians we ate with them we had Sabbath dinner in the home of a rabbi and his Family, we met with UN officials, the US consulate. We experienced that conflict from, from all sides. And peace in that context is such a such a powerful word. But to really have genuine 
peace, I think the first thing we need to do is understand what that word means from a biblical perspective, because it's not the same thing that we think of. Today's text uses the word peace twice, shalom in the Hebrew, which I said is inadequately translated as peace, but it means so much more. Shalom means total economic, relational, emotional, and spiritual flourishing, things the way God always intended them to be. And the text gives us a list, very partial list, not complete at all, but a very partial list of some of the things that shalom includes. And one of those is justice. This text predicts Jesus arriving centuries before he is born, and it says he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom with justice and righteousness. And justice is kind of a politicized word, but what it basically means is everyone gets treated the way that God wants them treated. God bless everyone, no exceptions. It means the poor get help climbing out of poverty. It means people who are oppressed get help getting out of oppression. And I saw the need for justice, man. My trip to the West Bank, I saw the need for justice everywhere on both sides. And I know some of you are very strong supporters of Israel, and I know others of you are very strong supporters of Palestinian rights. So I'm going to try to be very even-handed here so as to maintain shalom in our congregation and in my emails this week. But I saw, I saw the need for justice all over the place. One of the places we visited was a prison and watched several hours of military trials of Palestinian kids. One kid was only 12 years old in prison for throwing a rock at a soldier, which Israel classifies as a terrorist act. He'd already been held for a couple of weeks without trial. The whole hearing was all in Hebrew. They didn't, his family didn't speak that. They spoke Arabic. There was a translator, but out of a 20-minute hearing, he translated maybe like five minutes worth, leaving the family completely in the dark what was going on. And the result was the actual trial was postponed yet again. So this 12-year-old kid is going to remain in jail for throwing a rock. And I'm a supporter of Israel, but I was just sitting there and I was getting kind of mad and saying, this man, this is a miscarriage of justice until the translator leaned over and told me that the Israeli judge and the Israeli prosecutor were Russian Jews who had fled the Soviet Union where Jews were persecuted and came to Israel to be safe. And in that moment, I thought, oh, there it is. They had experienced oppression and injustice themselves, which made them afraid, which is why they were clamping down so hard on the Palestinians. We had several Israelis tell us, look, for 3,000 years, people have been trying to kill Jews. And we've had multiple, multiple terrorist attacks here in Israel. And, and, you know, it's not very big. Israel's not much bigger than Western Washington. And so they're saying, we've got to clamp down like this to be safe. And you just see on both sides these cycles of injustice. Fear leading to injustice, leading to more fear, leading to more injustice. And where there's no justice, there can be no peace. There can be no shalom. Now, I did see signs of hope, and I'm going to share those with you in just a few minutes. But shalom entails justice. And part of this is just self-interest, right? Because where there's justice for everyone, there's peace for everyone. Heard a lot of Palestinians and Israelis both say, man, our ultimate security really is in learning how to be friends rather than being afraid of each other. I mean, and if you think about it, that's true, right? Like, I mean, how many of you live in daily fear of Canadians? Right? Like, none. No one, right? Because they are our friends. Shalom means justice. Second thing shalom is about is right relatedness. The word used in our text is righteousness, but that kind of conjures up, you know, images of self-righteous and all that. Biblically speaking, righteousness means right relatedness, being rightly related to God, each other, and to our environment. 
and as a community. And that can be hard to do, especially the each other part, right? Rightly related to each other, that can be tricky. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, how many of you, let me just ask, we're in the middle of the holidays, how many of you have family gatherings during the holidays that are completely free of irritation, no tension whatsoever? Gosh, that's weird. Not very many of you. On Thanksgiving Day this year, on Thanksgiving Day, I got a text from someone who goes to our church, and he said, I remember you once preached on reconciliation, and you outlined five steps of a good apology. Could you text those to me today? Oh, family, Thanksgiving going that well, is it? Shalom means being rightly related to God, our environment, and to each other. And then the third thing that shalom means is the presence of Jesus. In a similar passage to the one we read today, the prophet Micah predicts the coming of Jesus, again, centuries before he was born. And he says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, and he will be our peace. Peace isn't a something, it's a someone. It happens when we experience the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus. So shalom, among other things, is total flourishing, economic, spiritual, all of that. It's also justice, right relatedness, the presence of Jesus. And finally, shalom is participatory. Because whatever God gives to us is meant to be given away to others. And when we act as agents of shalom and seek to bring wholeness and justice and right relatedness in our schools, in our offices, in our neighborhoods, when we do that, it brings us fulfillment and a greater sense of shalom ourselves. Heard a pastor from Boulder, Colorado talk about the floods that hit that community a couple of years ago. And during the storms, the roof in his church started to leak. So he put a bucket under the drip, and then he saw another drip and put a bucket under that and did that a couple of times. Went home, super anxious, couldn't sleep, worrying about the church, how are we going to pay to repair the roof and all of that. And in the middle of that, Jesus just kind of nudged him. And he thought, wait a minute, here I am worrying about the drip, drip, drip in my own church when my entire community is flooded. And for him, that became kind of a metaphor for how we live our lives. We're always worried about the drip, 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 drip in our own lives when there's a bigger world out there that needs shalom. And so then it occurred to him that there are a lot of people in his church who are pretty talented and could help the community in the floods. They, not to mention fix their own roof in their own church. So he got them together and they helped people repair their homes. They helped businesses reopen. They helped schools reopen by the construction work that they did. And along the way fixed the drip in their sanctuary. And he said it felt so good to get out of his own problems. So good to stop being obsessively focused on the drip, drip, drip in his own life. Peace isn't found in fixing the drip, drip, drip in our own lives. It's found when we seek shalom, the flourishing, total flourishing of other people. Which means shalom is anything but passive. I mean, peace sort of sounds so passive. Shalom is anything but passive. It's energetic. It's active. See, shalom may not be comfortable, but it always is comforting. It may be courage to make a hard decision. Maybe it's a renewed sense of purpose in in the middle of discouraging circumstances. It's a sense of God moving and of God's presence. Perhaps the most significant experience of shalom I've ever had in my life was when I was deciding to come here, whether or not to come here. And some of you have heard me tell this and others of you haven't. Uh, After the search team offered me the job, I asked for three days to pray about it. We were living in California. Went back and on the last day, I, I went to the beach for the whole day in California. It was October. It was 80 degrees. I'm like, why am I even, like, why is this a decision, right, to go to Seattle and 
I prayed all day, like literally from, you know, like morning till evening. I prayed all day, got nothing. No sense of God's presence, no comforting spirit, no thoughts that were, nothing, zero, not a zilch. So I called the chair of the search team, and I said, you know, I think I oversold myself in the interview. Did anyone tell you I've got no experience, I really don't know what I'm doing? And he said, yes, 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 we've been made aware of your many incompetencies, and It's not quite an exact quote, but that was sort of the gist. And then he said, don't make me fly down there to get you, which kind of scared me. And, and, and so we kind of finished the conversation and hung up. And, and finally it was time to go. And I was walking back to my car, not thinking about God at all. I was actually wondering where I had parked my car. And then out of the blue, just boom, instantly, I got an idea for the first sermon series I would do if I did come. Just in like a millisecond, all the sermons just into my brain, just instantly. And, and the best way I can describe it is, is in that moment, it was like all the tumblers of the lock just clicked into place, and it opened. And I realized I was supposed to come here. And I said out loud, oh, crap. <laughs> Or a similar kind of thing. It was one of the most uncomfortable feelings I've ever had in my life, but it was comforting. There was a sense of the rightness of it, a, a courage to do the thing that it was being called to do, a sense of God moving. It was not passive. It was active. It was exhilarating, and it felt hard and good and exciting and scary and sad and whole and holy, all at the same time, shalom. A few years later, I was with a team from this church in Rwanda. Part of the reason we were there was to assess the viability of the Center for Champions, which we later built for street kids in Rwanda to help them get off the streets and get jobs. And, and, but this was before the capital campaign, before we had built that, and we were at a rally for street kids, and there was a row of girls, little girls, eight or nine years old, just super cute, and the translator told me, all of them need to work as prostitutes just to eat. And my heart broke. I mean, I got three kids. I just couldn't imagine it. But in that moment, I also heard God say in my mind, you're the pastor of a church filled with people who care. Go home and tell them about it. They will respond. Dummy. So I went over to the photographer that was with us, and I said, I need you to take as many pictures of this as you possibly can, because we got a million dollars we got to raise. And then you all gave, and we built it, and a lot of kids were helped. It was, it was not comfortable, but it was comforting. Shalom, bringing wholeness, restoring what had been broken, justice for those who didn't have it, making all things new, trying to bring the complete flourishing of everyone. And I've had many moments of shalom since. See, peace on earth is not some passive absence of conflict. It is the active presence of justice and right-relatedness and restoration and wholeness. It's not about having the perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect Christmas. It's the presence of healing and wholeness in Jesus. So then how can we experience a little more shalom starting like tomorrow? Because ironically, when we celebrate the coming of the peace of, Prince of Peace, that's not always the most peaceful season of the year, right? Well, the Apostle Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You know where he writes that from? Prison. See, shalom is when you can say that in prison. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, think about such things, and the God of peace will be with you. Three things on how to experience shalom from that text, and they all begin with the letter T, thinking, thanking, and trusting. So think. Paul says, whatever is true, right, lovely, think about these things. The the Greek verb there means to dwell on, to obsess over. You know, most of the advice we get on how to have, you know, about how to deal with anxiety and stress is, you know, rid your mind of negative thoughts. That's never worked for me. I don't know about, I have, I find it very hard to not think something. Because the minute I'm not thinking it, I'm thinking it, right? Plus, that just rid your mind of negative thoughts. That can just be a form of denying reality, pretending it's not there, right? When my brother and his wife had their third child, they were amazed at how well she slept through the night. And their room was in the basement, but, but they had a baby monitor. And for the first few nights, they kept saying, wow, this kid is just so quiet. Until one night, they looked at the baby monitor, and it had a little visual sound meter on it. And the thing was, like, way up in the red zone. Turned out the volume was off on the baby monitor, right? The poor kid had been screaming her lungs out, right? So they fixed it. She's fine. She's healthy and all that. You know, going to college, she's great. That's not shalom. Shalom is not pretending it's not there. Shalom is not being deaf to reality. Shalom is not the absence of negative thoughts. It's dwelling on, it's the presence of what is worthy, lovely, noble, that helps us rise above the problems. Thinking. Second T, thanking. I heard someone recently say that whenever something good happens to him, he writes it down on a piece of paper and puts it in a shoebox. And then at the end of the year, around Christmas time, he opens up the shoebox and reads all those pieces of paper, each containing something good that happened that year, many of which he had forgotten. And he says it just brings him a sense of joy and peace. Thanking brings shalom. Thinking, thanking, and then finally trusting. Paul says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That is, he thanks before he even gets what he's asked for. And the reason he can do that is because he trusts that God will give him good things, even if they aren't the things he asked for. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story of when he was single, there was this girl he wanted to marry, and he really wanted to marry her. The problem was she wouldn't go out on a date with him. So he would always pray, God, please, you know, make her date me, make her date me, all of that. She, at one point, she got a job at a resort, so Tim Keller got a job at the exact same resort, and his prayers would always start, look, God, I'm making it easy on you. Come on, make her date me. He is so glad that God did not answer that prayer the way he wanted because the woman he eventually married ended up being a much better partner for him. For one thing, back when he wanted to date that other woman, he didn't know he was going to be a pastor. She would have hated that. Trusting God means trusting that when we make a a, a request, he will grant us what we would have asked for if we knew as much as he did. Trusting God means trusting that when we make a request, he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew as much as he did. And when you trust that, you have shalom. If you you want the peace that passes understanding, sometimes you got to let go of understanding. And sometimes not getting what we want is the best way to peace and wholeness and shalom. A while back, I read an article on real things that have been said to whole food cashiers. Sort of things like, you know, what, are you going to go to the parking lot into the car and tell my daughter that you're out of vegan parfaits? You know, or my favorite one, you know, what am I going to do? You're out of Spanish goat cheese and the dog won't eat anything else. See, that is our culture's definition of peace, having everything the way I want it. What a flimsy, lousy definition of peace. 
Because no matter how perfect we try to arrange our lives, there's always something that's not quite 100% right. Someone's always out of Spanish goat cheese. And then your life is ruined. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. That is, Jesus gives a different kind of peace, a more durable kind of peace. So this week, rather than trying to pray stuff out of your life, why don't you pray stuff into it? You know, instead of Jesus, take away this problem, take away this fear, pray stuff into it so there's no room for the bad stuff. You know, Jesus, bring your right relatedness. Jesus, bring your presence. Jesus, bring your wholeness. Jesus, bring justice in, through, and around me. Jesus, make me an instrument of your peace. Because when we are peacemakers, we are peace experiencers. One of the most hopeful things I saw in the West Bank was when we met with the founder of a nonprofit called EcoPeace. And this guy said, you know, look, solving the Israeli-Palestinian problem, that's too big. That's impossible, right? So we focus instead on a concrete, specific problem, namely the Jordan River, which is vital to Israelis and Palestinians and Jordanians. The problem is that now it's so heavily used, only 96% of what used to flow through the Jordan River no longer flows through the Jordan River. In fact, in some places, it looks like that. It's just a muddy ditch. That's the mighty Jordan right there. And it's just polluted as all get out. And, of course, the Israelis blame the Palestinians, and the Palestinians blame the Israelis, and everyone blames the Syrians, and blah, blah, blah. Right? So this nonprofit brings together Jordanian, Israeli, and Palestinian mayors up and down the Jordan River. But if they just brought them together, of course, they would all fight. Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, they would all just fight. So the first thing these mayors have to do with people from their town is go around their town, and they have a list of things that is harmful to water, and they have to check off as many of those things as they find in their town so that when they come to meet, they realize they themselves are part of the problem. So the finger-pointing stops, and then they begin to work on real tangible solutions. And this group takes a faith-based approach, and so they've prepared workbooks for Jews and Christians and Muslims on the sacred meaning of the Jordan in all three religions to show that this is a spiritual issue as well. So, for instance, the book for Christians, all the hymns that mention the Jordan, all the verses that mention the Jordan. And they're not talking about peace. They're just trying to fix the Jordan River. But in the process, they begin to understand that people on the other side are just like them, have the same hopes, same fears, same, same issues that 99% of Palestinians are not terrorists, that the vast majority of Israelis do not want to be occupying oppressors. They're just trying to raise their kids and get along and all of that. And along the way, they become friends. And all of that has created a grassroots movement that puts pressure on local governments to fix the Jordan River that in turn generated national pressure in Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. So they've built sewage systems. They're managing their water differently. And so now for the first time in 49 years, fresh water is flowing out of the Sea of Galilee down the Jordan into the Dead Sea. Now in the Middle East, water is power. So the thinking is, I'm going to deny my enemy access to this water. But now they realize we are all mutually dependent. we got to work together. So they drafted a covenant that was signed by rabbis, imams, and pastors. The chief mufti of Jerusalem shook hands with a Jewish rabbi for the first time in history. And now they're working on a new project. Because, see, Israel has more water than it could ever use because it's the world's leader in desalinization and recycling used water. But Jordan and Palestine are bone, are bone dry. 
However, desalinization takes a ton of energy, which Israel does not have. So now, but Jordan is just vast stretches of hot, sunny desert. So now the proposal is to put solar panels all over the Jordanian desert that would generate electricity that would be shipped to Israel to use for the desalinization of the water that would then be shipped to Jordan and Palestine, creating healthy dependencies where now there are unhealthy dependencies. And it's creating friendship, and it's creating understanding between peoples. Brilliant, right? Working, absolutely. Making a difference, yes. Leading to peace, yes. Not without cost. The, the founders of this nonprofit have had death threats from both sides because all sides see them as traitors. And European countries have stopped funding them because they work with Israelis, and other groups won't fund them because they work with Palestinians. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? And yet the founder of this nonprofit, he just bubbled over with enthusiasm and joy. Like he could not stop talking. He was so excited. And he was filled with something that is in very short supply in the Middle East. Hope. I mean, I left our conversation thinking, man, we, this Israeli-Palestinian thing, solvable. Yeah, we can solve this. Because he just had so much hope. In spite of the death threats, in spite of the funding being cut off, he had an infectious spirit of hope and joy. He had shalom. Not a passive absence of conflict, but actively bringing justice and restoration and right-relatedness between people. In fact, he said, we don't build a thing. The only thing we build is relationship, and that leads to a whole lot of flourishing, and it leads to peace. Now, I'm not saying you got to go out this week and start a nonprofit to have shalom. No, no, no. For you, maybe it's just making a list of what you're thankful for. Or maybe it's to bring some peace into a toxic work environment. Maybe, maybe you just remain calm during a tense meeting. Or, or, or maybe you affirm a coworker, even that coworker that you can't stand. Just affirm them and then watch how that brings peace into a difficult environment. Maybe it's to seek justice in some way or to let go of some of the pressure you put on yourself to have the perfect Christmas or maybe just spend some time in prayer or just enjoying the season or maybe it's just to say, I'm sorry and heal a relationship. Whatever it is for you, step into it, but also step into it with Jesus because there is no way to have peace unless we walk with the Prince of Peace. Our mighty God, our everlasting Father, Jesus, Prince of Peace, who alone brings full true shalom. So Jesus, that's what you do. And we ask that you would make us instruments of your peace. Lord, we ask that you would work in us and through us to bring wholeness and right relatedness and shalom and help us to lean on you for that because only you can really give it to us and to this world that needs us so much. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.